How can Christians live out their faith in the church, the family, and the government? Find out in the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November, Faith That Shines in the Culture. It's written by regular guest Dr. Alfonso Espinosa. Learn more about Faith That Shines in the Culture at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. Faith That Shines in the Culture, the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November. For decades now, the trend has been in church growth circles to downplay any kind of distinctive Christian elements on Sunday morning in favor of things that mimic the culture. What has that done for the church's witness? And there's been a lot of talk about Christians in their various vocations going out and sharing the light of Christ, but some of those churches share very little of that light to the Christians in the first place. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's time for part three of our series, Christian Sanctification in the Three Estates. Today we're going to talk about pastors, priesthood, and the congregation. Dr. Alfonso Espinosa joins us. He's senior pastor of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Irvine, California, and author of the Issues Etc., a book of the month for November, Faith That Shines in the Culture. Dr. Espinosa, welcome back. Thanks, Todd. It's good to be back. What does it mean that Christians, and therefore the church, are salt of the earth? Salt and light are put together side by side in the Sermon on the Mount by our Lord Jesus Christ, as recorded in Matthew chapter 5. Context is everything, as you well know, Todd. In this context, our Lord, after he uses these two metaphorical references of salt and light, he goes on to talk about things that describe our lives, our practical living as sanctified Christians and the uh, the morality, and while Christian faith isn't about morality, it certainly impacts our morality to show goodness and that which is contrary to evil. Uh, Jesus elaborates on the Sermon on the Mount in terms of speaking about anger and judgment, lust, adultery, divorce, taking oaths, retaliation, loving enemies. So, in going back to your question, salt is that which represents our being enabled by the Holy Spirit through the word of Jesus Christ to be God's emissaries, representatives, ambassadors, to go out into the world to stand against that which is against goodness, against the qualities that God wants us to emanate, to show the love of God and the love of Christ to the world. So salt preserves the world from its own rottenness that does go contrary to that which is needed for life to prosper and life to know light. The world tries to bring darkness. So as salt, we are people of God who go out to salt the world, to know what is good, that which opposes evil, to know that which is light, that which opposes darkness. Why does the sharing of Christ's light within the church have to come first? Well, you know the saying, first things first, if we are indeed the light of the world as we are called by our Lord Jesus in Matthew 5, then we have to pay attention to what the Lord says in describing how his light works, if you will. For example, in Galatians chapter 6, the Word of God says in verses 9 to 10, and let us 
not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Analogously, as I was being raised by my parents, my mom would teach me about good conduct and right behavior and right words. And then she would remind me, as you go out now, you're representing our family. And if you don't conduct yourself this way, people are going to say that, I guess his mother didn't teach him any better. I guess his his parents didn't show him any better. Well, it, it all starts at home, doesn't it? We are called with this priority inherent in Galatians 6 to start at home, to do good, especially within the household of faith, to live as a people of God, the family of God. And as we are honing this emphasis of loving one another within the household of faith, we can then effectively go forth from the congregation and share that love with others outside of the congregation. But given this priority, just imagine uh, what Satan's strategy might be like to attack the local congregation, to bring infighting and division within the local congregation, so that Christians will be all the less able and motivated to go forth from the congregation to share the light of Christ. So it needs to begin within the household of faith. Describe the place where the church gathers around Christ's light. Well, that place is our sweet and holy uh, sanctuary, isn't it? The place where the people of God gather. Just recently, Todd, we got to, in fact, it was last Sunday, we got to uh, dedicate some brand new stained glass in our sanctuary. And we're, we're just tickled pink. We're praising God. Uh, the smiles are just all over the parishioners' faces as we are celebrating this great gift. And it's in the sanctuary, the holy place that's set apart, holy place where we receive the word of truth, the word and sacrament of Jesus Christ that fills us with his light, that fills us with Christ himself. And it's really uh, pretty cool to consider that the way the sanctuary itself is designed, it in and of itself is a proclamation of light and the exuding of light in the world in the name of Jesus. As you know, the main portion of the sanctuary, the portion where the people of God gather to uh, participate in divine service is called the nave, from that Latin word for ship. We're going through life in this world, and very often that voyage through the world is like a storm as we are confronted by sin and death and the devil and the world. But in the nave and on the ship, we have refuge. We have sanctuary in the holy place. And uh, we are being saved from darkness in that holy place, in in the holy church. So it it doesn't surprise us that the tradition of the church and adorning this holy place would, would be to have as many sources of light emitting in the midst of God's people as they receive the gifts of Jesus. So in our rich tradition, we have things like the two candles often on the altar itself, the light of Christ symbolized in in the two natures of Jesus, true God and true man who comes to serve us, giving us his very body and blood. Many congregations have the candelabra. You might have a different number of candles on the candelabra. In our tradition, we have um, what I've seen in many congregations across our Lutheran church body and LCMS, seven-candled candelabra, 
which effectively represents things like, for example, the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, but very often are said to represent the seven churches in Asia Minor that are presented in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 1. What's so awesome about that picture is, as it's presented in uh, John's Revelation, is that Jesus is in the midst of those churches, the light of the world in the midst of the church, lighting his church. So it's there in the candelabra alongside the sacred altar, where we see a picture of the light of the world lighting us to be the light of the world. There's so many other lights that are adorning that have such rich meaning. For example, the Paschal candle. It takes us back to the Old Testament Passover, of course, when God passed over his people whose houses were marked by the blood of the Lamb and kept them in his grace and the forgiveness of sins. We know in holy baptism today, because in receiving holy baptism, we receive the blood of the Lamb and we cross over from death to life as we're incorporated into Jesus Christ. That candle is there right by the baptismal font to remind us that we enter into the light of the world when we are baptized. Many congregations also have eternal candles that remind us of the heavenly host and the communion of saints that we celebrate in every divine service. There are lights everywhere <laughs> in the holy place. That's just not coincidental. We, we are getting back to what the scriptures are proclaiming, that to receive Christ is to receive light. And in this setting full of light, we're receiving the light of holy absolution. We're receiving the light of Christ's preaching. We're receiving the light of his body and blood. And as this light enters his people, they themselves become light. So we have this wonderful scripture uh, that we know so well in the Lutheran tradition, 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness <laughs> into his marvelous light. So in that holy sanctuary filled with light, we receive light and we become light by the grace of God. What is the vocation of pastor? You know, there are many ways for us to talk about that vocation. One who serves in the office of the holy ministry, who preaches the word of God and ministers the sacraments. But I, I think we miss out when we forget that the pastor is one at the end of the day who's giving light. The office of pastor gives the light of Jesus Christ. And when he preaches that word, Something very special is going on. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 10. It's through that preaching of the word. He says, consequently, faith comes by hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. That word is a light. It's the light of Jesus that travels from the pastor to us in the pews, and it enters into us and creates faith and nourishes faith and, and strengthens faith. It fills us with the light of Christ as a pastor is proclaiming. And as that pastor is God's chosen and called instrument to do that, he is someone that we may identify as a light among us as he serves faithfully in the sacred office, not only when he preaches on Sunday mornings, but when, for example, we come to him and we kneel before God and we practice private confession and absolution. The pastor is there as the light bearer of Jesus to proclaim Jesus' holy absolution, his light upon us again and again and again, never tiring to do so, never being distracted by how 
often we have come, but always bearing the light of Christ. So as a pastor is doing this, Todd, he is a light bearer that is of inestimable value to the church. And we thank and praise God for faithful pastors. They are the ones who bring the light of Jesus. How should we regard our pastor as a spiritual father? Indeed, they are spiritual fathers because they bring to us that which births us and gives us life to be born again or born from above by water and the Spirit. They are the ones serving in that office through which the Holy Spirit works, the Word of Christ and the sacraments of Jesus to literally give us new life. So we associate our new lives with the pastor who is responsible in bringing these means of grace to, again, birth us according to Christ's power through the Word, but also as a spiritual father who has a responsibility to look over our souls. We receive the Word. We come to saving faith. We're nurtured in that faith. Pastors, someone we know as an under-shepherd who walks with us, he leads us. We have that picture of the Good Shepherd in Psalm 23. And what is he equipped with? Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The rod and the staff representing the tender leading of a good shepherd, but also the rod, which represents his ability to protect us from false doctrine and the wolves that come to attack our souls. He's there to defend us. And so Luther had a lot to say about this as he was elaborating upon the office. And um, in this office, in the preaching of the pastor, the pastor serves, but at the same time, he cannot tolerate what is against Christ in his word. Luther said, but to God's enemies, I must also be an enemy, lest I join forces with them against God. And I think, unquote, so far Luther, to take in what he is saying, that this pastor has a responsibility as a spiritual father, as he's referred to, by the way, in our large catechism in the Book of Concord. Uh, according to our confessions, they are ones who are called to govern and guide us by God's word. These pastors are worthy of double honor according to the word of God, even if to the world they're like filth and everybody's refuse and foot rag, as our Lutheran confessions also say in the large catechism. But within the church, we know them again as light givers, and we welcome that because they're spiritual fathers always shining the light that we know in the way we should go, and they are there to ensure that we stay on the path of Christ. Thanks be to God for our faithful pastors. Dr. Alfonso Espinosa is our guest, author of The Issues Etc., a book of the month for November, Faith That Shines in the Culture. It's part three of our series on Christian sanctification in the three estates. We're talking about pastors, priesthood, and the congregation. How is a pastor sustained by his congregation? How can conspiracy theories become a form of idolatry? I've written a column for the latest issues, etc., a journal titled, Yes, Elvis is Dead, But God is in His Heaven, a pastoral response to conspiracy theories. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Julie Stegemeyer writes about her path from Methodism to Lutheranism. The free online issues, etc., journal, issuesetc.org. Lutheranism in the Public Square. You're listening to Issues Etc. 
This is Pastor Matthew Harrison, president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. The LCMS operates the second largest parochial school system in the United States. What can you expect from a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod school? There's one race, the human race. And Jesus died for the sins of every man, woman, and child from every land and every nation. Life begins at conception. All life is precious from womb to tomb. And every student, parent, and teacher is created in the very image of God. There's right and wrong, and we know which is which from the Ten Commandments. There are only two sexes, male and female, he created them. Marriage is the lifelong union of one man and one woman. There's such a thing as objective, absolute truth, and it's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ and His Word. To find a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod school near you, visit lcms.org schools. discussing sanctification in the three estates, and today we're focusing on pastors, priesthood, and the congregation with Dr. Alfonso Espinosa. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues, etc. Dr. Espinosa, how is a pastor sustained by his congregation? Well, Todd, just as pastors are light bearers and give the ministry of light to God's people, they too need the light of Christ. And this particular point, I just can't say enough. We have an entire branch of our Office of National Mission on the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod that's dedicated to care of all of our church workers, both commissioned and ordained. It's a big deal because in our world today, to serve in the ministry, the sacred office, is to uh, enter into a place where our called servants are worn down and often worn out. I'd like to quote to you something I wrote elsewhere regarding the importance of our called workers having called workers for themselves, pastors that serve pastors and pastors that are receiving care, not just giving, but receiving. This is from our uh, Confession Absolution, CTCR, uh, came out in 2018. A seemingly endless list of demands invites an overwhelming sense of failure to seep into the pastor's soul. Endless expectations and demands may also make the ministry a lonely vocation in which the pastor feels spiritually and emotionally starved. Our leaders should be aware of this. Our elders in the congregation, for example, should be aware of this need that pastors have to receive light from the people of God who have called him and who have an opportunity to surround him with loving support and encouragement, lifting up his arms to keep him strong and healthy. I share an account in the book, Todd, where when I was called to Living Word Lutheran Church in the Woodlands, Texas, outside of Houston, went to a much larger congregation than I'd been accustomed to before and had uh, enormous administrative responsibilities and a lot more people to take care of. And even though I had a large staff, I quickly learned about how important it was to receive care. So not only did I have a father confessor and Reverend Dr. Scott Murray out at Memorial in Houston. But I also had a very intentional effort within the congregation to support me. I had a large team of elders, about 15, 16 elders, but among those 16, there were three who uh, comprised a 
pastoral advisory committee. I met with them separately and we would pray together. They would pray for me and they would encourage me. And they were there for me to bring the most considerable challenges that I face as a senior pastor before them so we could talk them through and really take extra time not only to address what we were going to do as a congregation regarding these issues, but to serve me at the same time to ensure that I was getting enough rest and enough care. Well, this was like receiving the light of Jesus on me through these men. And this is what parishioners get to do in taking care of their pastors, to be a light to their pastors, to know that we're not alone in our service, but we, those we care for also care for us back. How is church membership itself a calling? That's such an important question. We've come to this place in our culture where it is so easy to get lost in the crowd. A lot of the uh, neo-evangelical megachurches are so large, and even in the more uh, traditional confessions and denominations, I say more, more traditional, I should say, like Catholicism or, or Orthodoxy, we can have very, very large local congregations where it's easy, again, to get lost in the crowd. And because of that, I think what it does is um, it can, it's capable of leaving the impression in a person's mind and soul that to belong to a church, to be a quote-unquote member of a congregation, is something that is represents very slight interaction and very slight involvement. And this, this strays from what is intended according to the Word of God, that we are members not on a roster, not on a roll to be counted among a large gathering, but we are members as in members of the body of Christ at that local congregation. According to Scripture, even the least noticeable or least prominent member is, is quote, indispensable, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And because that is the case, we we need each other. Uh, God has placed us there strategically to take part in the mission, the local mission of the congregation. And so to have that greater understanding of our identity as um, indispensable members of the body locally gathered in the congregation, that means that I am to train myself and be trained in understanding that God would have me constantly pray for my congregation, and not only come to worship, divine service, and other services like tonight, we have a Thanksgiving Eve service, but to also be there to identify my gifts that can be shared actively, regularly, frequently, orderly with the people of God, my brothers and sisters in Christ in the congregation. These are people I want to come to know and get to know, and, and developing a sense of community so we feel comfortable coming to one another's homes. Remember back in the day, for example, it's Paul writing to the church in Rome. He's writing to a bunch of house churches. And they were accustomed to not only worshiping together and praying together, but having meals together and being there to actively care for each other when practical needs arose. If we get back to that identity, Todd, it's easy to see why church membership is a full-time vocation. And of course, the closer we get back to that that idea, that image, the more we will reap the benefits of what it means to be the family of God. So I encourage all of our listeners to please rejoice and be glad 
that to have a local congregation means you have a full-time vocation to contribute to the community of faith through your worship, through your prayers, through your service, and through your witness. Finally, with about a minute here, you talk about how friendship with believers and unbelievers is a holy calling. Explain that. Yeah, absolutely. I I think the best place for me to go with the time we have, Todd, is to back up and to think of the fact that in Romans chapter 5, it's revealed to us that when Jesus was on the cross of Calvary, bearing the sins of the world, saving us from sin, death, and the power of the devil, that all this was happening, uh, according to Romans 5.10, quote, while we were enemies, while we were enemies of God. So when I think of Jesus standing before his disciples, saying in John chapter 15 that, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. He is calling them friends before they would disperse in fear and anxiety after he was arrested, before Peter would deny him, before all of the ways that they would continue to be in constant conflict and struggle with their sinful natures, proving themselves to be everyday bonafide sinners in need of grace. And yet for these, Jesus says, I'm your friends. If we were enemies, even when he died for us, what should this do to us when we go out into the world? We should consider, as Jesus considered all people, as his friends, those that he's going to go to, he's going to eat with. Remember, he would eat with those that the Pharisees and other religious leaders considered to be public, open sinners. They're asking the disciples, you know, why does your teacher eat with sinners? You know, this is what we're doing. We understand that the one who died for us was the one who died for enemies so that he could call us friends by what he did for us. So we go out into the world, whether that person is a believer or an unbeliever, we see them as one for whom Jesus died and rose, and therefore a friend. And we're ready to be that friend who will listen, who will come alongside of them, who will serve them with the love of Jesus, no matter what they believe. And when we take on that kind of mentality, Todd, then friendship is a vocation. It's a way that we get out into the world to shed the light of Jesus Christ upon all people, believers or unbelievers, in Jesus' name. Dr. Alfonso Espinosa is senior pastor of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Irvine, California. He is author of The Issues, Etc., Book of the Month for November, Faith That Shines in the Culture. You can purchase this book by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040 or browse before you buy at our website, issuesetc.org. Dr. Espinosa, thank you. Thank you, Todd. When we return, we'll look forward to a day of Thanksgiving with Pastor David Peterson. I'm Todd Wilkin. Stay with us. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. 
You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.